Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. All right, welcome. I'm guessing from what I saw on people's screens from the back of the room that you guys have a lot of stuff going on. Okay, not just this, not just some other stuff, not just whatever. I tell my students at Sanford that one way to really, really succeed in life is to uh, learn the fine art of not doing more work than you absolutely have to. So part of what we're going to do for the next 50 minutes and then the 50 minutes after that is going to be to talk about a lot of things that I would hope can go into a paper you've got to write for a different class, a paper you've got, something you've got to do for econ. If people are talking about, I don't know, if you're in a history course, for example, the next talk is going to be about what we call the bourgeois era, why people in some places are very rich, why people in other places are very poor. If you take good notes, then all of a sudden, here's an enormous amount of your work that's already done. But for about the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about the economics of Walmart as sort of an indicator, sort of an exemplar of the major changes that have happened in the world over the last couple of hundred years that have made it so that we today, who are almost certainly not the descendants of gods and kings, have standards of living unlike anything our ancestors could have possibly imagined or could have possibly dreamed about. One of the things I've done some work on, uh, and Dr. Matthews mentioned some of the academic research I've worked on, has been the effect of Walmart on different things. And I've come to the conclusion that Walmart, specifically, and changes in retail more generally, um, are among the most important economic phenomena of the last several decades. And they have redounded to the benefit, not of the rich, but of people like you and me, of the poor. Okay? And we're going to see how that is and why that is over the course of the next little bit. This presentation is brought to you by my book, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. Okay? Co-authored with the economic historian Deirdre McCloskey, available from the University of Chicago Press, Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. We mentioned URLs a second ago. Write this one down if you think that I'm not paid enough, and I'm not. Then this is my Amazon affiliate link. Okay, where I would get, I don't know, 50 cents, whatever, should you buy it from there. And that's going to lead us now into a discussion of Walmart. Okay. Now, the Walmart and retail, we're going to talk about a handful of aspects of Walmart and its effect on the economy, beginning with the one of the big ones, and that being employment and wages. Employment and wages. Walmart's tagline for a while has been, has been always low prices or everyday low prices, or they said, save more, live better. Critics of Walmart have said, well, no, it's not always low prices. It's always low wages. It's always low wages. And furthermore, when Walmart comes to town, they create low-wage crappy jobs, 
and they destroy all the good jobs at mom and pop's grocery and places like that. So the saving that you get from shopping at Walmart is it comes out of the guts and the flesh and the blood and the sweat and the tears of oppressed workers. It's an interesting story, and it's uh, kind of heartrending, but it's not supported by the data. It's not supported by the data. First, um, among economists who have studied the relationship between Walmart and employment, the effect is either positive on net or neutral. Emmett Basker, uh, an economist who's now at the Census Bureau, used to be at the University of Missouri, did some of the original really good studies of the effect of Walmart on employment and found that on net, Walmart created jobs. Okay. They crowded out some retail jobs. They crowded out some distributing jobs. There are places that close, of course, when Walmart does business. But on net, there were new, on net, there were new jobs created. A couple years after that, a group of economists led by an, econ by an economist named David Newmark looked at it in a slightly different way, and they found that every new job at Walmart reduces the number of retail jobs by about 1.7. Okay. So it may very well be the case that each new job at Walmart yields a reduction in jobs in retail. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are a lot of things you can do with your life other than work in retail. And they argue that if you're thinking about the overall employment effect very generally, it's almost certainly neutral at best. So the effect on jobs, effect on jobs may be positive, likely neutral, almost certainly not negative. But Walmart jobs are terrible, you might hear. Okay. And indeed, uh, I used to work at a music store when I was in high school, and I remember having a coworker who said, the thing about working retail at Christmas is it can make you really hate people. Okay, and if you've worked in retail, you probably know some version of this. If you've ever worked in a music store, you probably had some variation of this conversation, which is, you know, there's this song that's like really popular right now, and I don't know how it goes, and I don't know what it's called, and I don't really know who sings it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. No. No, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. Okay. Fortunately, now, in the 21st century, we've got algorithms that'll, that'll fix a lot of that for us. But yeah, I mean, retail, retail's fun. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I liked working in a music store and things like that. But, you know, there's a reason why I don't do that now. Okay. A lot of reasons why I don't do that now. And one of the reasons, of course, is because of the pay. Okay. Didn't pay particularly well. It paid a king's ransom for me when I was like 16 years old. Okay, but now it's not something I could support a family on. So another criticism that we might hear is that Walmart pays everyday low wages. Walmart pays everyday low wages. Is that true? Okay, well, once again, stocking shelves at Walmart, you're probably not going to be able to live high on the hog, supporting a very, very large family. But once again, the evidence suggests <laughs> that large firms and large establishments pay a wage premium relative to small firms and small establishments. Okay. So the difference between a firm and an establishment is as follows. A firm is like comparing Walmart to Fred's. You guys have Fred's here? Okay, Dollar Tree? Okay, uh, actually Dollar Tree is really not that small anymore. But <clears throat> Walmart is a much larger firm than Dollar Tree. Establishments would be comparing a Walmart supercenter to the Chinese restaurant in the shopping center next door. Okay. The restaurant next door is a small establishment. The Super Walmart is a gigantic establishment. 
Okay? Now, uh, large firms and large establishments, again, tend to pay uh, tend to pay premium wages and offer better benefits than do small firms and small establishments, which I think is consistent with the notion that people's real earnings increase as a result, say, of, of Walmart being able to do business. Now, notice I just said people's real earnings increase okay, when Walmart comes in to do business, and that's another one of the major effects. Okay? That's another one of the major effects is Walmart's effect on prices. Walmart's effect on prices and then how those prices translate into standards of living for average, normal, everyday people. Once again, people who have looked at the Walmart effect have found that Walmart leads to price reductions through two channels. One, Walmart has a pretty substantial cost advantage over everybody they compete with. Okay. Two, Walmart exerts competitive pressure on the companies they compete with so that the companies they compete with have lower prices because otherwise people are going to go to Walmart. In fact, about 15 years ago, a little more than 15 years ago now, some economists argued that the Bureau of Labor Statistics might actually be mismeasuring the consumer price index because they don't adequately account for the effect of Walmart, Target, Costco, and firms like that on the cost of shopping. They argue that shopping at a Costco or shopping at a Target or shopping at a Walmart is a very different experience from shopping at a corner grocery. And by virtue of the fact that, they argue, the BLS is not adequately accounting for this, they are overstating the rate of inflation. Okay. It's a big deal right now with inflation running at like 7% per year. Walmart's effect on prices, they argue, leads to higher standards of living. Okay? And this is important if we think about the rate of inflation because there are lots and lots of stories about purported stagnation among middle class earnings and lower class earnings and various other earnings over the last 50 years, roughly. If, in fact, we're overstating the rate of inflation by a percentage point or two, that whole story goes away. Second, Emmett Basker again has looked at the spillover effect of Walmart on prices and has found that when Walmart comes to town, prices tend to fall, obviously. And especially, prices tend to fall primarily at stores that serve low-income consumers. Okay. Prices fall primarily at stores that serve low-income consumers. So whether you shop at Walmart or not, you're a beneficiary of the Walmart effect in that you know, the local save and shop or whatever has lower prices by virtue of the fact that Walmart is there to compete with them. Publix has lower prices by virtue of the fact that Walmart is there to compete with them. Target has lower prices because Walmart is there to compete with them. Now, then a handful of economists critical of Walmart have argued that Walmart perhaps costs taxpayers something like $4.5 billion in welfare and things like that. Because you know a lot of Walmart employees are on food stamps or what have you, let's assume for sake of argument that that's correct. If it is correct, though, the additional savings every year from Walmart's lower prices or from the Walmart effect on prices are something like three or four times that. Okay. So maybe there's a slight increase in welfare payments okay, or something like that from Walmart doing business, but a huge reduction in prices. What about quality? What quality? It's another aspect of shopping. First of all, the shopping or the, the quality of the shopping experience 
And second of all, whether or not they actually have the stuff that you're looking for. Okay, this is a big deal, again, especially now, with a lot of supply chain issues and things of that nature. Back when I was in college, we were having one of those sort of stupid conversations in the middle of the night about like, you know, if you could go back 25,000 years and could take one thing with you, what would it be? And this was like 1997 to 2001 at the University of Alabama when the football team was terrible, so we couldn't talk about that. Okay. And a friend of mine said, a super Walmart. And it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe he's abusing the, uh, uh, the sort of spirit of the inquiry a little bit, but we figured if, if a Walmart supercenter doesn't have it, you don't need it. And, again, uh, an economist who has studied the relationship between Walmart entry and competing firms' inventory practices has found that when Walmart comes to town, competing firms are a lot less likely to have stockouts. Okay, competing firms are a lot less likely to have stockouts, meaning you show up and they don't have the thing that you want, they don't have the thing that you need. That's a lot less likely when Walmart comes to town. How many of you have seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay, a few people have seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a, kind of a modern, modern retelling of the Odyssey in a certain sense. It stars George Clooney as the Ulysses character. And um, at one point, they're in somewhere in Mississippi. And he wants to buy, he needs to buy car parts. And he goes into this little store in middle of nowhere, Mississippi. And he needs to buy a car part. And the guy behind the counter says, we'll have it for you in about two weeks. Okay, and he says, okay, well, I need, uh, okay, well, fine. Um, two weeks, I guess that's the best <laughs> we can do. He says, okay, I also need some hair tonic. And he says, I want Dapper Dan. And the guy behind the counter says, we don't have Dapper Dan, we got FOP, which is, I guess, a different kind of, like, hair cream. And he says, well, I want Dapper Dan. He says, if we want Dapper Dan, we can order it for you, and it'll be here in about two weeks. To which George Clooney responds, well, ain't this a geographical oddity? Looks like we're two weeks from everywhere in the universe. Okay. Had there been a Walmart supercenter in this part of rural Mississippi, in I, I guess this was like the 1930s, then the likelihood that this store would have had the car parts George Clooney needed and the hair tonic that George Clooney needed, that would have been much, 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 much higher. The likelihood of stockouts and, uh, has fallen and the quality of the shopping experience overall has increased. Now we get into some of the work that I've done with some of my co-authors, one of them Charles Cordemanche at the University of Kentucky. And we look at the relationship between Walmart, social capital, values, and leisure activities. Because there's a lot more to life than cheap goods. There's a lot more to life than stuff. There are things like time with your family. There are things like time with your friends. There are things like time at church and stuff like that. And another one of the criticisms of Walmart that gets levied periodically is that Walmart destroys the communities that it goes into. Because they go in, they wipe out all the like, small businesses and stuff like that. That destroys the social capital in the community and makes it a worse place to live. Now, social capital has two elements. Social capital is, first of all, grease. It is a network of relationships that we use to get things done. Second, social capital is glue. It's a network of relationships that binds us together. 
Social capital first can be an input into production insofar as the relationships you have, the networks you have, will help to determine your long-run earnings. Okay. You, hear the, you hear the story, it's not the grades you make, it's the hands you shake. Okay. Well, relationships can help you get things done, and then further, relationships can be, can be valuable for their own sake. I was playing Minecraft with my daughter yesterday, okay. and the whole time I was thinking, you know, I should be working and earning money so that I could buy more cheap crap. Okay. So I sent her an invoice via email earlier today, billing her at $400 an hour for the time that I spent playing Minecraft. No. Like, no decent person does that. No decent person thinks that way. My relationship with my daughter is an end unto itself. And there's a thesis, again, that when Walmart comes to town, this stuff doesn't happen as much. We look at the data, <clears throat> at the relationship between Walmart and things like how often do you go to church, do you have dinner with your friends and family, stuff like that, different indicators of social capital and the quality of relationships, and find that Walmart doesn't really seem to have an effect. Walmart doesn't really seem to have an effect on all of these things that we think of as being the stuff of a good life, okay? the stuff of a life well lived. Second, there's a relationship between Walmart and values. Okay. In the middle of the 2000s, Walmart took a lot of heat from a bunch of different directions. First, they joined the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, okay, which meant that the right took issue and said, oh, you know, Walmart is trying to foist their sort of secular, urban, bourgeois values on the rest of the world. At the same time, however, there were certain things that Walmart didn't carry. Like, they didn't carry Maxim magazine. Okay, because it offended people. Some people were offended by it. Nirvana's In Utero album, I think they had to have a special version of it made just for Walmart because Walmart didn't want to carry an album with a song called Rape Me on it. Okay. And so they got a lot of, uh, they got a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but some attention from the left saying, oh, Walmart is trying to force its rural bumpkinish values on everybody. Walmart wants to be a conservative cultural gatekeeper. Okay. And by so doing, make people worse off. Once again, we look at the data, and it turns out that's not really the case. Your politics, your religion, your values, your drug use habits, things like that don't really seem to matter. They don't really seem to have that much of a relationship with, with Walmart entry. But, again, people might say, well, when Walmart comes to town, yeah, sure, they... they are a source of lower prices, but it's for lower prices for cheap, vulgar crap. Okay. Walmart comes to town and, yeah, sure, you get cheaper video games and the $5 DVD bin and stuff like that, but it comes at the expense of the finer things in life. It comes at the expense of the cultivated mind. Sure, you might have a bigger TV on which to watch college football or something like that, but what about poetry? Are we, in short, exchanging T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, one of the great ones ever written, for television's vast wasteland, which it was, it was denigrated as in the early 1960s? And once again, the evidence suggests that, yeah, no. No, not really. We're not being made base and crass and awful and illiterate by virtue of the fact that Walmart comes to town. Okay? The people around you who are into horrible things are not into horrible things because Walmart is there. They're into horrible things because people in general are into horrible things. 
Walmart doesn't, again, seem to have much of an effect here. Entry, exit, operations. What about the effect of Walmart on the overall efficiency of the economy? Well, <clears throat> when Walmart enters, they tend to drive inefficient firms out of business. They tend to drive inefficient firms out of business. And that might sound harsh. That might sound harsh. But those inefficient firms are, in a very important sense, wasting resources. They're using the time, the talent, the treasure of the nation to produce, I'll say, gummy bears at a higher cost than would be necessary. When Walmart, when Walmart comes to town, and by virtue of changes in the retail sector more generally, we have a much more efficient, much leaner social operation, such that the supply chain problems we have right now would probably be a lot worse, were it not, again, for a lot of the innovations that we've seen at companies like Walmart, companies like Amazon, etc. What about health and nutrition? What about health and nutrition? Here's something that seems to make to make sense. Like if you're if you're in micro, or if you're if you're in yeah if you're in any economics class, but in micro specifically, Walmart comes to town. There's a technological innovation that increases the supply of food. Okay. Well, if it increases the supply of food, what happens to the price of food? It falls. Okay, good. If the price of food falls, what does the law of demand tell us is going to happen? People are going to eat more. People are going to eat more. So there's at least a prima facie case to be made that Walmart entry could lead to or should lead to or would lead to increases in food consumption and therefore perhaps increases in obesity. In, in the paper that Dr. Matthews mentioned and that was in the Journal of Urban Economics, we again look at the data and find that Walmart supercenters tend to be associated with slight increases in obesity. So. Again, the Walmart effect on health might be a little bit ambiguous. The Walmart effect on health might be a little bit ambiguous. Walmart comes in. Walmart drives down food prices. People eat more food. If people eat more food, they have slightly higher body mass indexes. And they have a higher probability of being obese. And we argue that the Walmart effect on prices, okay, the Walmart effect on prices both directly through Walmart having low prices and then indirectly through Walmart's effect on competitors, explained roughly 10% or so of increases in obesity from the late 1980s through the early 2000s. That's pretty substantial. That's pretty substantial. <clears throat> okay. But one might argue, one might argue that we need to compare the costs of all of this to the purported benefits. Okay. And so we do a little bit of math, and we try to compare the obesity-related or the, the increase in obesity-related health costs to the benefits from access to everyday low prices, and from the spillover effect of Walmart on prices and product availability and things like that. And we find that the increase in obesity-related health costs only offsets about 5.6 percent of the saving from Walmart's everyday low prices. So there might be a slight increase in obesity, okay? but the negative effect is swamped by the positive effect. Someone might say, 
perhaps with some justification based on our research, that yeah, we could reduce obesity, we could reduce obesity by stopping Walmart, by preventing Walmart supercenters from opening their doors and doing business. And that might be true. That might be true. Now you can probably tell I need to lose a few pounds. Okay. I could, if I wanted to, reduce my body mass index, reduce my weight by cutting off one of my legs. That's not a particularly good way to do it. It's not a particularly good way to do it. While it is true that I would, in fact, reduce my body mass index and possibly reduce my weight by cutting off one of my legs, it's also going to create a whole lot of other problems. Okay? A much better solution might be something like have a salad at lunch. Okay? And indeed, I emailed or I texted my wife last night, said I'm going to have the ahi tuna salad at lunch. I'm going to send you a picture of it. So she's going to hold my feet to the fire on what, on what I have for lunch. There are a lot of other elements of health and nutrition in addition to obesity. One is access to prescription drugs. Access to prescription drugs. Walmart's prescription drug program, where they introduced $4 prescriptions, had a big effect on people's access to prescription drugs to the probability, one, that they filled their prescriptions, Two, to the probability that they actually took their pills. Okay, and therefore, three, to their overall, uh, to the relationship, pardon me, excuse me, to their overall health. Okay. So, lower prices for drugs means more likely that people take certain drugs. If people are taking drugs that their doctors are telling them to take, okay, drugs your doctors are telling you to take, not drugs that your roommate's buddy are trying to sell you behind the library, then they're going to have better health outcomes. And again, that's kind of exactly what we see. Another major point or a major policy issue right now concerns food security. Food security. And food security basically asks, do people have enough food to make it from day to day? Do people have access to enough fresh fruits and vegetables? Do people have access to enough food in order to not have to skip meals, in order to not have to um, uh, pinch pennies too much. Okay? Do people have access to enough food? And in a paper that was published in 2019, my co-authors and I found that, well, if you look at the diffusion of Walmart supercenters, if you look at the diffusion of Walmart supercenters, there's a reduction in the likelihood that people are food insecure meaning they're answering yes to questions like, are you skipping meals because you don't have enough money for food? Okay. okay, there's less food insecurity after Walmart supercenters open their doors. And this is especially pronounced, once again, for people of relatively modest means. Okay. This is especially pronounced, once again, for people of relatively modest means. So poor people, and in particular poor children, tend to have greater food security as a result, once again, of Walmart opening their doors and uh, doing business in an area. Now, one of the things that makes this kind of interesting, I think, is, is from a policy perspective. This is a big policy issue. Okay? A lot of people are worried about food insecurity and are saying, oh, we need all these policies to increase food security. We need to like subsidize farmers markets and stuff like that because, yay, food security. Okay. Or maybe you just don't stop Walmart when they try to open their doors and do business in their community. I'm looking at you, Chicago. 
I'm looking at you, Washington, D.C. I'm looking at you, San Francisco. I'm looking at you, many, 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 many large cities. So we have increases in food security as a result, once again, of Walmart supercenters opening their doors and doing business. How did all this happen? How did all this happen? If we're going to tell the story of Walmart and the story of retail in the 20th century very generally, it's fundamentally a story of entrepreneurial discovery. It's fundamentally a story of entrepreneurial discovery. In the early 20th century, you had the chain store menace. The chain store menace is chains open from coast to coast. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, for example, they were able to reduce shipping costs, able to reduce operating costs, and things like that by virtue of the fact that they could expand these gigantic networks. And a lot of people thought, well, this is a threat to independent merchants. Okay, it turns out, however, that chains exist for a reason. Chains exist for a reason, and chains exist, one, because, again, like I said, they reduce distribution costs, but then also brand names are very, very, very valuable signals of the quality of what is on offer. Brand names are very valuable signals of the quality of what's on offer. So for example, when you go to Chick-fil-A, when you go to Chick-fil-A, you see the Chick-fil-A sign, you know more or less what you're going to get. You know more or less what you're going to get. Okay. First, they're probably going to get the order right, okay, which of course you can't say that for everywhere. Second, it's going to be delicious. Okay. Second, it's going to be delicious. Okay. Now, your mileage may vary on this. I'll pray for you if you don't think that Chick-fil-A is delicious. Okay. Okay. Third, it's going to be an environment that's it's going to be fresh, and the restaurant is going to be clean. Like clean enough to eat off the floor clean, usually, for, for a Chick-fil-A. Okay. Delicious food, hot, fresh. Someone's going to say, my pleasure, when they hand it to you. Okay, it's going to be a very, very satisfying experience. Now compare that to going to Waffle House. Okay, the first Waffle House, incidentally, can, uh, is from Decatur, Georgia. And you can go to the original Waffle House. They've got a museum. We did this a few years ago, the kids and I. I uh, went to the Waffle House Museum in Decatur. Okay. What do you get when you go to Waffle House? Well, the food's delicious. When the food's delicious, Absolutely, wonderfully delicious. What about cleanliness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can eat off the floor in a Chick-fil-A. You're taking your life into your own hands, eating off the table in a Waffle House. Okay. Now, this is, not, this is not to gainsay Waffle House, because again, the food's delicious and the food is bloody cheap. Okay. But, once again, the brand name sends a very, very, very valuable signal. Very, very valuable signal. And if any of, Wal if any of Waffle House's attorneys are watching this, just want to point out that before the pandemic, my kids and I went to Waffle House literally every Wednesday for Waffle Wednesday. We loved it. I've spent an enormous amount of money at Waffle House. I hope to spend an enormous amount of money at Waffle House going forward. And indeed, I embrace the fact that Waffle House offers me a great meal, probably cooked by somebody with a criminal record, in an environment that could probably use a hosing down. Okay. Waffle House, I love you. <laughs> Brand names. Brand names, are, brand names um, are, again, are an example of an entrepreneurial discovery that help to reduce what economists call transaction costs. In the case of retail, in the case of retail, Walmart was a major innovation. Walmart was a major innovation. 
Now, Walmart did not spring fully formed from Sam Walton's mind. Okay? However, or rather, he took a bunch of already existing ideas and a bunch of already existing things that people were doing, and he said, you know what, I bet this can work in rural towns in places like Arkansas and places like Missouri and places like Kansas and places like Oklahoma. It's been said that the reason he, he set up Walmart or set up shop in northwest Arkansas is because he was right next to four states, so he had four different hunting seasons. He could use, he said, well, you know what, if you put a Walmart in, if you put a big store in the county seat of rural middle of nowhere, Missouri, that store can do well. And lo and behold, he was right. Lo and behold, he was right. Okay. Now then, he got a lot of his ideas from other people. He got a lot of his ideas from other people. One of those is a guy named Saul Price, who was a lawyer in San Diego, who did a lot of work for the local community and came up with an idea saying, hey, you know what? We could probably succeed in San Diego by putting together a warehouse store. Where did he get this idea? Well, he accompanied some of his clients. He's in San Diego, California. He accompanied some of his clients to a Fedco store in Los Angeles. And Fedco was a warehouse club store that sold only to government employees. And Saul Price noticed people are making the journey, a lot of people are making this journey from San Diego to LA so that they can go to this Fedco place. San Diego's a big Navy town. He said, I bet I could succeed, I bet I could make an enormous amount of money by opening a Fedco in San Diego. So he said to the Fedco people, hey, can I open a Fedco in San Diego? They said, no. Okay. Well, what Saul Price then did is he ended up with a real or he ended up with a warehouse uh, that he had through a real estate deal. He had to do something with it. He said, "You know what?" Fedco said, "No, but I think I think I'll just start my own company and call it Fed Mart." Okay, and it succeeded. It succeeded. Okay. Sam Walton would get a lot of his ideas about retail from watching Saul Price, from observing Saul Price. Indeed. Um, there's at least some evidence to suggest that he got the Walmart name from the fact that he liked the name Fed Mart. Later in life, later in life, Saul Price ends up being basically kicked out of his own company, and but not being one to be defeated, he says, "You know what? I'm going to change retail again." He invents what we what we today know as the modern warehouse club. Price Club was uh, was the thing that he came up with, that he innovated, and that he developed in the 1970s. A little bit later, Price Club is, is wildly successful, mostly along the West Coast. A guy says, hey, you know what? I would really love to open one of these Price Clubs in, uh, in Seattle, Washington. I think it'd do really, really well. And Price Club says, no, no, we're not going to do that. So what the guy, Jeffrey Brotman, does is he hires he hires Price Club's main guy, a dude named Jim Senegal, and he starts a company called Costco. And then Costco, some number of years later, ends up merging with Price Club and becomes one of the biggest retailers in the country. These are stories of entrepreneurial discovery. Part of the upshot here, and this is what we're, some of what we're going to get into in the next lecture, is that Saul Price, Jeffrey Brotman, uh, Sam Walton came up with cool ideas and they didn't have to ask anybody's permission 
really to act on them. Didn't have to ask anybody's permission to act on them. People said, ah, Sam Walton, your whole thing will never work. Your whole thing of having a big store in the county seat, that's never going to work. He said, well, people are coming to the county seat for a variety of different reasons. They'll probably come here to shop, too. Okay. And he became the richest man in the world as a result of his innovation. Okay. Fedco said, no, Saul Price, we're not going to do business with you. You can't open one of our stores in San Diego. He said, okay, well, I'll just open a different store that does more or less the same thing in San Diego. Okay. And now the Saul Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California is one of the results of what Saul Price did. Price Club said to Jeffrey Brotman, yeah, no, not going to open a Costco in Seattle. He said, okay, hey, Jim Senegal, I'm going to throw money at you. Come work for me, and we'll start this new thing. And now Costco is one of the world's biggest corporations and one of the country's most successful retailers. The modern analog to this, of course, is Amazon. If there's anybody who's going to beat or who's going to absolutely eat Walmart's lunch, it's probably going to be Amazon. Another crazy idea that this guy Jeff Bezos had. I can sell books on the internet. People said, folks are not going to give you your, their credit card information over the internet. He borrowed some money from his family, built a huge fortune. Retail innovations over the course of the last century or so have been huge in terms of increases in our standards of living. The Walmart world, the Walmart economy, is one that is, on virtually every margin, better than the world that our ancestors inhabited. If we continue embracing innovation, God only knows what's coming next. Okay. And God only knows what that's going to mean. Okay. So, all right. Thank you all so much for a wonderful time. Happy Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.